Hey, good afternoon, all. Welcome to an afternoon edition of the Common Good podcast uh, and live stream. Uh, super excited to be doing two today. Uh, we did talk this morning about politics, just Rob and I. And uh, this afternoon here now, we're going to also be talking with uh, Gretchen Barton. Gretchen is many things, the host of the greatest four-year-old birthday party I have ever attended. I'm sure producer Dan would say... <laughs> would say similar things and uh, <laughs> lives in Pittsburgh uh, is also the research director for future majority which is a group trying to help uh, you know, us have a different kind of a future uh, in this uh, in our political life and is the principal at uh, worthy strategy group so she thinks a lot uh, uh, Gretchen does about how Americans think and in the vote common good world she's uh, Big fans of this work and big fans of, of her suggestions for how we can understand how to connect with and, and uh, motivate people to make the common good their voting criteria as opposed to other things that it might be. So, Gretchen, nice to have you here. Uh, and uh, Gretchen has a very well crafted and so inspiring of a slide deck. And if you're unfamiliar with yeah. that phrase, it's the kind of thing in some industries that phrase we use series of images and, uh, and, and, pictures and words to take us through a, a set of ideas on um, how it is that Americans need to be framed as the hero in the story. You know, we talk about this a lot, Gretchen, on the podcast. I don't know if you know that, but we talk about how there's in classic storytelling mode, and I think it's something we should break in the country, but there's always a hero. There's some kind yeah. of, a, of a victim and there's a villain. Rarely does anyone recognize themselves in the category of the villain, right? It's it's pretty oh rare. God. Somehow people are victims <laughs> and heroes, victims and heroes, and and then uh, you place you know villains on someone else. But rarely do people take that on their own. And it's an important part of how we structure. So all the stuff you're talking about and what you're going to do with us today, we're so grateful for it. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, it is funny actually that you mentioned that talking about the villain because that was something I had done early work when I was first getting into the political world on young voters. And uh, one of the things that I found with young millennial voters who were going out to vote, they identified with this idea of like Katniss Everdeen, uh, Rock. Uh, Star Wars, this idea of the hopeful rebel, um, you know, someone who against all odds, you know, facing down a big foe would gather with thousands of others trying to, you know, have the battle of their lives. They may win, they may lose, but ultimately um, their um, their hope was that they, they would, you know, transform the world through, you know, the sacrifices that they would make. That was sort of a big thing for the 2020 election. And, um, one of the big ahas after doing that research was I was uh, looking at uh, this this former CIA agent who was talking about how that hopeful rebel idea mm -hmm. is something that, that even people, um, you know, we would consider villains, maybe people who blow themselves up. This is, sorry, I'm taking a dark turn. But, um, you know, they see themselves as a hero. They're, they're yeah. Luke Skywalker facing down the evil empire, right? They're the protagonists mm -hmm. and they're willing to sacrifice it all. So... You know, uh, it, it is interesting. You know, we always identify as heroes. And yeah. it's really important um, that our political communications center Americans as the heroes of the story, understanding that, you know, they're not the protagonist. Joe Biden's not the protagonist. You know, policy wonks are not the protagonist. It's really the voters. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Rob, do you have any uh, means of introduction? Or are you just ready to go along on the Gretchen Barton uh, Make Americans the Hero of the Story Ride? Yeah, you know, uh, and, and Gretchen, I maybe by way of preface, when I first saw this presentation of yours, it reminded me so much of Don Miller's book, Building a Story Brand. And I'm, mm. I'm curious if if you have if you've read that, if like mm. 
if you're just like, you're not just totally co-opting it, I'm sure. Of <laughs> maybe you are. Um, no. <laughs> because what, what he talks about in, in kind of the marketing world for businesses, yeah. they need to, instead of positioning their business as the hero of their brand story, they need to position their customers as the hero of their brand story. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, so a, a, are you familiar with, with story brand? I'm not, but I have worked with a lot of professional storytellers, um, namely Kirk Chambers is is, um, someone who's on my board and a good friend and a colleague. And he uh, used to run Storytellers uh, International, I think. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I got that wrong. But he used to work in corporate America, as did I, um, and really helped brands tell their stories. So definitely understanding those principles of narrative has been something that come from that world for sure. I'm writing down that book right now. I need to read. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is like right out of it. Like, cause what, what Don Miller talks about is this idea that, you know, all the classic stories there, there is a hero who Mm -hmm. has some obstacle, has some villain that they have to, um, that they have to face. And along the way they meet a trusted guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action. And he talks about Yoda being that person. Mr. Miyagi is that person, you know, like you meet the trusted guide. And, and what he suggests is that brands ought to position themselves as the trusted guide. Mm. And, And I, and I have thought for so long that, that political candidates running for office need to position themselves as the trusted guide. And the voters, the hero of the story, they're the trusted guide who's there to say, hey, this stuff that you want, this thing that you're facing, I'm going to help you get there. And, and, and what you've done with this, with this work is just so in line with, with that that I, just, I, I think it's fantastic. That's really cool. That's so funny because one of the things, you know, in the research that I, I do, I'm trying to understand, you know, how Americans think and feel um, about about everything, about government, about their values, about where America's going, where they're going, where they see the future, you know, how they see government playing a role in it. And one of the things that I always say is that Americans want the government to be an assistant to their success. Now, my reference point as a geriatric millennial is Britney Spears. I don't know if you guys know about Britney Spears. Um, (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm uh, glad she's free. Uh, That's all I can say. It's free, free Britney, right? So one of the things that um, I was really cognizant growing up, of, you know, was was her story. And, you know, she was the pop star, right? And she always had a trusted assistant, trusted assistant by her side. Her name was Felicia Fee, was what she called her. And Fee was always there. If you watch any documentaries, I'm kind of going to start feeling a little embarrassed. But if you ever watch a Britney Spears documentary, Fee is always there to be like, right, Britney, you're the star. Here's your schedule. Here's some coffee, you know, gently being there, but then like kind of retreating so that Britney can do her Britney thing, you know? And we saw later, you know, that narrative play out later. I mean, the real life story, you know, Britney, she had Jamie Spears kind of take over her life, which was terrible with the conservatorship. And the story that I hear Americans telling is Hmm. they want fee. They want that assistant. They want to be Britney. They want, I mean, not literally, but they want to be the star. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid that the government is going to be Jamie Spears. Is going to be like, I will control your reproduction. I will control your every move. I will control your money. Whereas they really just want to be awesome and they want someone to assist them in being awesome and then step out of the way and let them be. Um, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean that they don't want government. It's just, 
they want to change the dynamics of it and the way that it feels to them. Mm. So yeah, I think that that trusted um, guide thing is on point. Yeah. Rob. yeah. Can you say yeah. some more about how you do your research? Or are you going to get into that? that Cause you do this incredibly, yeah. I think people don't know how yeah. researchers like you do your work. And I think it adds a real lens to, to the, what we're about to see. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I, I came from the world of, of corporate research. I had done a lot of traditional research in the public health space and in academia. I had been doing, you know, polls and surveys and in-person interviews, um, focus groups. And that was always really great. Um, it was always really great. But I, I always felt like I sort of stopped at a certain level, right? There'd be a point where people would say, like, I'm doing this thing that's kind of wacky. And you'd kind of be like, why? Why are you doing this thing that I don't understand? And I had seen that in a lot of political things. You know, why Why did people vote for Donald Trump? Why did people do this? Why did people do that? You know, people act in funny, unconventional ways. And in the political world, a lot of the research that I was seeing happening was polls and focus groups. And polls are great, except you don't get into why. There's a lot of speculation like, oh, yes, I see. Everybody wants this. I know why they want it. I think it's because, right, it's it's a complete guess. And then in focus groups, you know, um, studies show that on average, um, people talk for about three minutes in a focus group. That's pretty much it. And it's wildly influenced by the people that are around them. And, you know, if you have someone who's a little more talkative, like me, and excited, you know, they're going to dominate the whole thing. And then you're going to completely miss Sally over here, who, you know, quietly is deciding to vote for somebody else and who never knew. And so um, I really felt that there was a gap um, coming into the political world, you know, with the kind of research that could transform the way that we think and feel about the voter. Mm. Um, I had done research in the corporate space that dealt with getting into the unconscious mind, where we understand a lot of decisions are made. People are emotional creatures, even though we don't think we are. We we are, are driven by our gut, by how we feel on an unconscious level. And the kind of research that I was doing, metaphorical elicitation, um, really found a way to access that through the use of metaphorical imagery. So for example, what it is, is, you know, I ask a person to bring in uh, metaphorical pictures. So not literal pictures, but metaphorical images that represent their thoughts and feelings about X, right? So it could be a metaphorical image that represents their thoughts and feelings about voting. And um, so I did a study like that, right? And people brought in images that showed them screaming into the universe or a drop in a bucket or a Star Wars character or what have you. And what this image does is it gives you a launch pad for really rich conversation um, about, you know, what is the meaning of this picture? Um, Why is it important? What are the emotions associated with it? How does it tell your story? Um, And... And really understand through that process, you know, what is what are the deeper what is the deeper constellation of thought, you know, because a belief doesn't exist in the void, right? It exists in the context of stories and history and baggage. People come to the table with a lot of rich stuff. People have a why for what they do. And this really gives us the opportunity to unearth that mm. and get at deeper values and emotions that are driving people's behavior. So, wow. um, so that's Just what great. I do. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see it. Can you, can you take, can you walk us through and show us the glory? Yeah, absolutely. So this is American Americans, the hero of the story, a quick guide to greatness. This is something that I put together because I, I had, I had seen how, you know, a lot of politicians were communicating and there was a lot of good stuff, but then there was a lot of stuff that felt like a really obvious miss. And I wanted to make sure that people had, you know, something to put in their pockets to remind them of how to communicate with, with voters in a resonant way that, 
you know, could could speak to their values and where they are. Um, you know, the State of the Union just happened maybe a couple weeks ago. I don't know. Time is kind of weird these days. But when the State of the Union happened uh, just recently, one of the things that Joe Biden said at the end of his speech was America is strong because Americans are strong. And I have to tell you, my whole being lit up when he said that. Um, and I think the reason I, I did was because it was using it was it was using the frame of Americans as heroes of the story. Right. We're here because Americans America is great because Americans are great. America is getting through COVID because Americans are doing the work of getting through COVID. It was a deep acknowledgement of the work that Americans are doing. And it was centering the voter, centering Americans in a time where a lot of Americans don't feel centered. And a lot of the research that I've done, you know, shows that they show it shows that Americans don't feel valued. They don't feel like they matter. They don't have a sense of control. Um, and I feel it's really important that um, the government, the Democrats, um, because I'm on Team Blue here, really focuses on speaking to voters in this resonant way that tells them that they matter, tells them that they have a future, tells them how they can regain control over their lives and their future and, and, and be, be part of that whole story. Um, so Americans as Heroes is, a, is an idea that's deeply resonant with Americans. And, you know, you only need to take a look at Netflix or yeah. HBO or <laughs> to see, right? Mm-hmm. There's Tons of these superhero stories, and it's not even just mythical superhero stories like Star Wars or Avengers. It's also things like Band of Brothers, right? We, um, where we understand ourselves as people that come together in hard times and get through tough things and come out successful. And that I found through the research that I've done is the story that Americans really long for and need to hear. They need to feel like they're part of a bigger story, that they have a role in that bigger story, and that they're moving forward into a better, brighter tomorrow. Um, a lot of political messaging, though, centers the politicians as heroes mm-hmm. or as villains, right? Um, I write here, um, evil politician Y will screw you over, or bad politician Z kicks up, right? We say, like, this is a villain, and this is the hero, and you just guys, you guys yeah. just watch. Um yeah. But yeah. there's a big connection there. Yeah. And, you know, one of the – is it okay, Doug, for us to just jump in? Uh, yeah, at least, just, at least this one since you've already started here. interrupting. Yeah, I think it will be fine this one time. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be just fine. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so, I mean, when I, when I look back at 2016 and, you know, the debacle that was the presidential election and, you know, you begin to do the autopsy on what happened there. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things to point to. Uh, but I think one of the things that was so interesting to me is the, um, you know, the way that, that Donald Trump framed his campaign versus the way that, that, that Hillary Clinton framed her campaign. And, you know, the, the difference between make America great again and I'm with her as, as slogans, um, I'm with her centers Hillary Clinton as the hero of the story and make America great again centers voters with Donald Trump simply being the, the, um, you know, the, the, the mechanism, the catalyst for that to happen. Um, and, and it's so, it's so interesting to me how these two people who the reality so different from the framing. The framing tells a story 
that is so very different from the reality. And it, it and it's no surprise that it resonated differently with people as a result. Of- oh, yeah. 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 That's something that's interesting. I'm interviewing evangelicals right now who tipped from voting for Trump to voting for Biden, you know, 16 to 20. And one of the things that's coming up again and again is how they felt so abandoned. They felt seen in 2016. And then they felt like, okay, this guy's got me. He's centering me. He sees me. And then he went off and like (laughs) did whatever the hell. And they felt completely left alone in this chaos and this carnage, which he wrought. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been more stark of a contrast, both in terms of the contrast between Hillary Clinton's campaign and Trump's campaign. And there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but also the way that Trump sort of sold himself and the way that he actually mm. saved. Yeah. So it is. Um, it is really important, of course, to center the voters, um, as I mentioned earlier, and and. You know, one of the things that I found in the research as well um, is that voters really feel um, that they don't necessarily have a responsive government. One of the things that I first learned when I came on to Future Majority was that on average, it takes about 43 days for the U.S. government to get back to anyone that reaches out to them, which is a long time. (laughs) It's a long time, right? Um, And in the work that I've done over the past year, I have been finding out where Americans feel they have a sense of agency, where they Mm. feel like they have a sense of control, right? And the government isn't it. Um, About four to five percent of Americans feel like they have a sense of control over the government. That's 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 low, of course, right? Sixty-one percent of Americans feel like they have control over corporations, their identity as a consumer, right? Mm. They can tweet. They can tweet Nike and say, "Hey, give me my monogram sneakers." You crazy people. You didn't give them to me. And they're going to get a response. They're going to get a response. I think that that's underpinning a lot of things that are happening. That's under happening today. But, you know, they can press a button and they they get a feedback loop. Um, Same thing. They feel like they have control over their kids. They they feel like they have control over their community. But they don't have they they don't feel like they have control over the government and repositioning ourselves um, or having the government reposition itself as an agent that is responsive, that does listen to people and it does deliver for them. It's going to be hard work, but it's, it's incredibly important because there's a, you know, people won't vote for government. They won't vote at all. If they don't feel like they can put a dollar, you know, in a, in a, in a vending machine and get a Snickers bar back, you know, they've been putting a dollar in for a while and there are no Snickers bars and voters are, you know, sad because who doesn't like Snickers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does this look like? As I mentioned before, Americans want the government to be an assistant to their success. We've really internalized um, the notion that our value comes from productivity. I think that we need therapy. Um, and in fact, uh, but I think a lot of Americans feel like their value comes from that, um, which is why the language of investment works so well with voters because they understand things in terms of productivity, in terms of investment, in terms of finances. But it also means um, that their identity as a productive person, as Britney Spears, as a star of the show, is really incredibly important to them. So they don't want to see anything get in the way of that. And what they want is government to be clearing away the barriers Mm -hmm. to them being them um, while facilitating their success. So how this shows up is, um, you know, think about the things that 
you know, show up in the mail every day, um, you know, the surprise bills, the scam calls, the things that slow you down from being awesome, the potholes. That's where a lot of Americans really want to see the government step in and say, right, this is a thing that's slowing you down. Let me take this problem away from you so that you can go on and be awesome. Um, that's something that has been showing up again and again and again. And it's really interesting um, to see. Yeah. So there's this big debate that goes on in our society about the role that the government should play. Sometimes it gets framed in size determinations, bigger government, smaller government, uh, more activist government or more uh, supportive government. Do, do you feel like um, what you're hearing and what this sort of American narrative ethos is has a clear call for what the generally the people of the United States want the government to be like? You know, they want a government that delivers. So whatever that looks like, they want an efficient government. They want an effective government. Um, I have heard folks who want small government talk and talk and talk about how they needed to make sure that they had their special services for their kid and their yeah. family. Um, and I know that there are services that, again, are really important that, you know, people can't deal with some big problems by themselves. Mm. You know, one of the things people talk about a lot, you know, healthcare, affordable healthcare. There is there is a time where government, I think, needs to step in and say, like, yes, $35 insulin, um, you know, let me manage, help, help just tip the scales a little bit in Americans' favor. But Americans, what I found is they may want government services, but they don't want to feel Hmm. like government is big, even if it is. They want to feel like it's efficient. So it's it's almost like size doesn't matter in a way. Mm At least that's that's how it's, it's more important of how it feels, and it's the the voter experience, the American experience that that really that really um, drives the conversation. I think for most voters. So maybe you're going to get to this. I can't, I can't remember. I think we've talked about it as well. So maybe it's coming from my memory of our conversations. But in the family systems model, which I know you you reference, right? Sometimes you can look at sort of how we experience our government through a family systems kind of frame. Some people really want the government, and this was a big thing for some Republicans and certainly with the former uh, failed presidential candidate and twice impeached president, that they really wanted uh, him to be like this ruthless dad character, kind of a tough guy dad. And some people want their political apparatus to be like a nurturing, caring caregiver you know, sometimes more more with motherly kinds of instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, d- does any of that play play into this business about how people feel supported? You know, like they anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's certain qualities that I think are consistent, regardless of who's president and what time it is. I mean. Um, and talking with voters, um, one of the things that's come up again and again and again is they want someone who is strong. A lot of Americans feel like the government at the end of the day, you got to make sure that they protect the people on some level, right? People don't want to, you know, die in their sleep. Nobody really wants to uh, die at all, but um, they want to make sure that there's some protective element there and that they feel like someone's going to stand up and have their backs. Um, but that idea of the parent is so resonant. Um, and I think you're right. When when they voted for Trump, a lot of people were looking for somebody that was going to shake things up, a sterner father figure. Um, a lot of people see Governor DeSantis, by the way, as as a dad. Um, you know, who's like, get to work. Um, and uh, that is that is absolutely a resonant idea. Um, and, you know, but then there are also times 
um, that they feel like they want a little bit more supportive energy, which is, you know, kind of explains the vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. That people felt like the government, that the country was sort of torn apart. They needed a healer. They needed somebody to sort of transform things. They needed to run away from the bad dad, yeah. <laughs> you know, go to mom, dad's, dad's in a mood. Yeah. Um, so, so absolutely the dynamic plays out. And I think that's some, one of the things I've been surprised by how many people sort of see these government leaders as their parents. Yeah. And I guess regardless, you're saying to belabor this family systems metaphor, mm-hmm. regardless of which parent they want, especially the president to be, or sometimes, you know, their maybe their state government, they yeah. want the parent to be helping the child to thrive. Right. I mean, right. either, either one of those, whichever it is, like if the point of parenting is to be the best parent, like to really be fighting for that best dad t-shirt, you know, yeah. like that's kind of not the point, right. Is to be a, to be a, everyone right. wants to be a great parent. Most people anyway, but I don't think that's the point. Right? The point is to sort of support another human being that you have the privilege of parenting to their, to, to live to their fullness. That feels like something missing sometimes in the in the political spaces. Hundred percent, hundred percent, right? Ultimately, and I feel like a lot of Americans are like thirteen year olds, right? They're like, "Go away, Dad! Yeah, Leave me right, alone!" Right. But you want to make sure you've got food on the table too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my daughter is my daughter is seven, and I uh, she's she's you know in first grade, and she goes off to to school, and it's the craziest thing because like there's this like twenty feet before I, we get to the school door and like as we've gone through the school year like at first it was like the five foot drop off then 10 foot now it's like 20 feet back she's like um i got this i got this you know and so she can take that journey alone but you know a lot of americans are kind of doing the same thing right they're like i got this i got this government leave me alone yeah. you know leave me alone i got this and you know if they they do need you know government to step in if if uh, things go go south, but ultimately they want to feel yeah. like they've got that. Yeah, great. Here's another thought. Americans need to see themselves in the future. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I have seen again and again is how Americans, they don't feel a sense of control right now over their lives. Uh, well, they feel a sense of control in certain ways, but they don't feel as much control as they want. They also sort of see um, the future and they wonder if they have a role in it. They associate Democrats with the future. They associate Republicans with the past. And when people feel scared about the future, they're going to go mm-hmm. back to the fifties. They're going to say, "I don't know where I don't know where we're going." So let's go back to what we've done before. I know what that is. I love the fifties. There were great skirts and lots of pie. Like let's do it. Um, and it's very familiar to them. Um, so I feel like it's really important that people in power, people in leadership, take the opportunity to tell the story, not only of like, this is what the future can look like, but also this is your role in it. You will not be disappeared. I've talked to voters before and look, people, this might not sound rational, but it's an emotional thing. I've talked to uh, voters who, you know, they talk about the statues coming down, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to this woman and she said, you know, when I see the statues coming down, she's crying. She's like, I'm worried about my boys. I'm worried if they make a mistake, and if I make a mistake, will I be disappeared like the statues? Now, the statues are another argument for another day. But the, the story of, of you know, being part of a larger story, coming from something that matters, being part of something that matters, and going into the future and, 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 and being part of, you know, that, that story in a meaningful way, um, really critically important need for just about everybody. Mm. Um, 
there's a lot of anxiety around this um, in terms for, for across across the population. You know, have we disconnected from the past? Are we connected with the future? How do we tell that story and how do we give everyone a role? Is that um, is being associated with the future, you know, you're in the anxiety that people have about the future. It, that's not that anxiety is not going away. You know, like I how do you it, it seems like Democrats, have, you know, being associated with the future are you know, are set up to fail with voters as a result of that. It's the devil, you know, it's the, you know, at least we, you know, we knew what was happened in the past. We don't know that like, is it, that seems like if you had to pick on the one yeah. hand, you'd say, okay, you know, obviously the future can be better and progress and all of that, but right. the emotion that people have towards it, the future, you know, is, is anxiety as opposed to nostalgia. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, fun, fun fact, by the way, nostalgia used to be treated as a mental disorder. Um, I don't know. If you know. <laughs> awesome. So, so yeah, yeah. But nostalgia feels safe. Nostalgia feels familiar. I mean, would I rather be a Republican or a Democrat in that regards, you know, knowing the Democrats are associated with the future? I mean, I feel like I've got a, I mean, I've got a bias in terms of my own beliefs, but I, I also feel like there's a very clear path forward for people telling the story about the future. It's really a story. It, it's a, it's a story where we say, look, we have done hard things before. We have gone to the moon. We have stormed the beaches of Normandy. We have done all of these things. You know, we were the innovators. We are the innovators. We have led in the past and we have inherited that mantle and we are continuing that legacy forward. So do not be afraid. We've got this. We've got this. And everyone has an important role to play. And this is how you can play a role. I, I think, I think it's not impossible to tell that story. And I think it's a really inspirational story, honestly. Um, and one that I'm proud to be a part of, but I can also see where it can be scary. I mean, changes scary. We stayed in our apartment in New York city that was, for, for way too long before moving to another apartment um, because I didn't like change. I don't, no one likes it. Um, but I think that people, um, I don't know. I mean, the legacy of, of change in America is also an exciting one, you know? Um, and I think Democrats really have an opportunity to brace it. Um, Democrats are associated with technology. They're also associated with climate action and, and sustainability, which I think are really great things, but also, you know, important things to acknowledge. Um, uh, one of the things that I discovered in my research, you know, there's a fear of disconnection. Um, there's a fear of robots taking our jobs. It shows up all the darn time. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many pictures of robots I've looked at. Um, mm -hmm. Fear that we're very smart with our cell phones, but we're not very wise because we stopped talking to grandpa. Um, there's a fear that we have ruined the earth and um, that we've lost connection with each other. And, and simultaneous to that, we have this dream of living a life of abundance where everyone has their needs met, mm. uh, where people are free, free to travel, free to be, free to retire, um, free to sit outside and reconnect with grandpa where the cell phone is put down and we're telling each other stories about things and older people are opening doors of opportunity and people are, you know, are living their lives. Um, there's a sort of a sacredness uh, to that mm. idea. And um, I think we need to be telling those stories about mm. how, you know, Democrats are, are, are reconnecting people, how they're, they're cultivating a better future and how we all have a role to play in that. So, so I, I think you're on to something here. And I've been trying to figure out 
what's the deep motivation and power and fear behind so many Americans around telling the truth of the American story. Ah. To some of us, this truth-telling is very cleansing, right? The taking of the land from indigenous people, the harming of the planet, our militarization around the world, the way we've treated, you know, captured uh, people and made them slaves in our country and then built a country on the back of them. To some of us, that all feels like truth-telling and the truth is going to set you free and it's important. To a lot of people... It's saying, you thought Americans were the heroes. They're not the heroes. They're the villains. And this is what the critical race theory argument seems to be about. Don't tell kids these things. Don't tell them their, their parents were bad, their grandparents were bad. Like, don't violate this sacred promise that we're anything but the heroes, right? Like, sure, storm the beaches of Normandy, but don't talk about dropping two nuclear bombs on two cities in, in Japan. Or if you do... You know, talk about that solemnly, but with no judgment. Where do you think this all fits? Now, I've yeah. wondered if the anti-hero that shows up in so many of our, or the, the, the wounded hero, you know, the sort of the dark hero, uh, if that can't be one of the metaphors sort of moving forward. But how, how do you think about those issues that were, seem to be particularly encasing us right now? Well, it's funny you mention that because around the time that CRT was really blowing up uh, around the, the McAuliffe-Youngkin election in Virginia, I reached out to my now friend, um, Reverend Rob Lee, because uh, he's the, and now confirmed, he is the descendant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now confirmed, like a now relative confirmed, of the... Uh, descendant of, of the Robert E. Lee, uh, the general. And I thought, you know, he's going to know the answer to this uh, question. And I, I said to him, you know, for purposes of, of, of contrast and not because mm -hmm. I think either of these are good ideas, but I said, look, you know, what, what do you think you should do? You know, as a Christian, mm -hmm. do you think in a church you should tell white people like, Hey, God's forgiven you. You're good. Don't worry about race stuff. Just go and be free and go to brunch. Like go do that. Or do you think you should say, Hey, white people, you suck. You did terrible things. You're bad. You're racist. Go sit down and don't open your mouth again. I mean, again, just for purposes of contrast, I don't yeah, think either yeah. of those are a good mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, you know, Gretchen, um, here's my family history. And he said, you know, I had people in the KKK in my family. I had all of this. And I've, I've gone public and I've told that story. He said, I think I feel a little sad. He said, because there were also some really good things that my family did. And people come from complicated pasts. He said, also, you know, evangelicals, and I was a former evangelical, so um, I share this history, but evangelicals are told in their churches by their pastors when they are from, from you know, whenever they start going, that they are essentially nothing without God. I mean, maybe that not everyone gets that memo, but I got that memo. You are nothing without God. You are, you are, you are rags. And he said, I think as a pastor, he said, I, I think that my role is to tell people that they are good, that they have goodness in them. He said, I think that there's a deep psychological wound that a lot of evangelicals hold, you know, by being told that they're bad and that they're, they're not good. And that someone like Trump comes along and says, I see you, you are good. You are a hero. And then they light up because it's something that they need. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about that. I think a lot about the art of war and the idea of giving people an out. I mm. feel like 
the idea of essentialism of saying like you are hopelessly flawed forever and there's nothing that you can do to fix things is a really big problem. You always need to give people space to move and move forward. And I think that that's where we've gotten tripped up with some of the stuff with CRT um, by saying, but, you know, and, and this is sort of part schmear, I think, of CRT is the idea of telling people you are bad. You come from a long line of crap. There is nothing that you can do to fix it. And by the way, I'm going to take control of your kids. Now, that's not the reality of it, but the idea mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. You have to feel like they have control, the deep psychological need of being told that they're good, and also the, the need that people have to feel like they're coming from something good and going towards something good, right? And so I don't think that telling a story about our past, um, mm-hmm. I don't think we need don't need to lie. We can tell that story, but I think it's really the tone of it and where it's going, right? It's not, I think, that America sucks and it's terrible and they come from a long line of crap and there's nothing they can do about it and they should just sit down and just go home. I don't think that that's America's story. I don't think it should be. But I do think it's a story about how America, you know, put something together with God's help or not or whatever it is. They put something together and the work of Americans is constantly trying to live up to its best ideals, continually working to get better, um, and all of us coming together to make that happen mm-hmm. and, and get better every generation because we try our best. That's I think that that's a story that you know we found in research and, and also just generally um, you know resonates with people. And I think yeah. we can still tell that beautiful story. Yeah, I, I think you're on to you know. I think wonder if this is why the phrase. Um, Amazing Grace has become like the national hymn, if there was one. Even people who aren't in the Christian tradition, it's a very Christian hymn. But it kind of transcends, you know. I mean, Obama gets away with singing it at the funeral of the people who were murdered at Mother Emanuel Church and so on. And it it rises above, right? I think there's something in there where, because I think we have a broken psyche in America. We know the things we did. And we know that history and we're trying to reconcile it and saying, how do we go on in the future? So this notion that there's an, a grace that allows for that broken, harmful, yeah. sinful thing to be carried forward. And then I think what's in the mix is people feel like whether it was the person who said to you, I don't know, the statues make me feel like my children aren't going to be able to move forward or the yeah. neo-Nazis chanting, they will not replace us or people... Yeah somehow making Brent Ka- Brett Kavanaugh the hero of the story where yeah. he becomes like the, the the picture boy of cancel culture. All of this yeah. cancel culture, don't replace us, don't take down our statues, are people saying, this is what I'm afraid is going to happen, that right. the, the people who had power and control, are it's going to be taken from them and turned over to someone else. And... So there's another hero that's coming into the story. So this hero thing, all of a sudden, now, now I'm out of my league here, but now starts to become like, I don't know, in the, in the DC world or the, I don't know which, what people make, the superhero movies, where they all like have to come together and they're fighting with each other, you know? That like there's this battle for who's going to be the hero of the story. In like hero fighting hero is what seems to be going on in our world. I, does any of that seem to... to resonate yeah absolutely absolutely i mean people definitely they 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 need to feel like they're yeah i I think that i think it comes down to you need to give people 
um, something to do and a place to move. I mean, the story of America is, you know, it's an aspirational story and it's one where people have the opportunity, if they work hard, they're going to be able to, to make something happen. And I think it's really important to resist the essentialism, mm. you know, the, of some, I, of the idea of like, you have done something or your ancestors have done something and there is, there is no way forward for yeah. you. Um, everybody needs to be included um, in the story of America. So, um, yeah. Um, which, 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 uh, oh, there you go. Brings me to my yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, American, Americans don't feel acknowledged. Um, in, in the research that I've done, you know, a lot of Americans, I would hear them say this and I thought it was odd at first and then it became a, a bigger thing. And, um, you know, people talk about, you know, I'm, I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. Yeah. I mean, they won't say I'm a good, boy, good girl, but they'll say I'm a good American. I, I pay my taxes. I take care of my kids. I don't run through the streets naked. I mean, I, I follow the rules. Uh, where's my, where's my cookie? Yeah. Right, and they feel like, um, oh, what's the parable that we talk? Uh, the one where the the guy goes off and he, uh, yeah, he the, rolls prodigal, the, the prodigal son, the so the son that leaves the family and goes and lives the riches of his heart's desire, and then comes home and says, "I'll even work in your barn." Yep, that's it. That's it. That's the story of America. That's yeah. it. I mean, but but uh, but a lot of Americans feel like uh, the one that stays behind and does everything yes. right. And kind of goes yes. like, why is why is the prodigal son getting all the attention? Yeah, right. You know, so understanding and gets that summed up in people saying, why do you take my hard earned money and give it to a bunch of people who don't work hard? Like this is the thing that goes on in people's heads, which is not what's happening. It's not what's no. going on, but it's the story that people tell themselves: is I'm the hero, and then some villain came and took it from me and gave it to somebody else, and now, you know, what's what's a guy like me to do in a world like this? That's right. That's right. So centering Americans in the story and what they're doing and going, right, I see you, you are good, you matter, yeah. you matter to me is important. 65% of Americans we found in a recent poll, they don't feel like they matter at all to the government. They don't feel like they matter in America. That's a lot of people. And it's a problem. It needs, you know, people need to be acknowledged. And then finally, uh, mm. well, there's so much more, but I want to be mindful of time. Yeah. America, Americans wonder if there's enough for them. There's yes. a big tension about about who gets what and how much people have access to. Um, super broadly speaking, there's a certain portion of Americans that talk a lot about, like, I want to hold on to what my family has. I want to hold on to what's mine. I want to make sure that Junior is playing at the same baseball field as you know previous generations, and I'm worried that that's all slipping away. At the same time, we hear another story rising up, usually Black voters or Latino voters, but they're talking about, but not, not, not only, um, talking about, like, I want to hustle. I want to work hard. I want to get mine. You know, please stay out of my way, you know, go away racism, go away redlining, go away government, and let me have what I need. And the story of of getting, you know, achieving is is really important to a lot of Americans. Mm. Um, but it only works if there's enough for everyone. So the story we need to tell is about one of, of, of abundance where there is enough for everyone versus one of scarcity, right? Where it's sort of like, hey, you know, you had a cookie last time, so you're not going to get one and you're going to get one. That makes people crazy in their heads. It's important to lean into abundance because, um, Americans believe that there can be abundance when you mm. when you talk about um, uh, American uh, America as a place where things can happen yeah. um, mm. if we work really hard, right? This this we tested. We must invest in America because Americans are worth it, right? Endowing people with value, talking about their value. When you invest in Americans, our potential is limitless. That's something that's really resonant as an idea with a mm. lot of Americans. So, yeah. so how, how does this strike you? Because uh, when when you hear politicians, and there's a lot of this um, 
same framing on different sides of the political mm-hmm. spectrum, but saying, hey, American people, there's some people who are out there to cheat you. And now we'll mm-hmm. just insert who's cheating you. Some Republicans mm-hmm. will say, the government's not the solution. The government's the problem. They're, they're taking something from you they shouldn't take. They have too much power. We need to get the power out of their hands. Other people say, mm-hmm. corporations. Corporations are the problem. They're the ones that are doing it. Or rich people. Rich people are the ones that are doing it. We need to take from them and give to the others. Like, that feels like it works. No, I mean, it works. It works with certain portions of the population. It doesn't work with okay. everybody. Uh, well, let me just show you something here, if, if I can. One of the things that oh, look I... look at all that gold we're breezing by. Okay. Sorry. One of the things I stare at every day is this chart, right? As I mentioned before, right? Four to five percent uh, feel like they have control over the government. But these three things show up in the qual a lot and in quantity qual. They feel like they have control over the community, their kids, and their control as a consumer. Wow. People have weird relationships to corporations, right? So imagine here, this is the this is a little bit of attention, right? If you say, if I'm the government and I say to you, hey, I'm going to take all, the, I'm going to take the control back. I want to be in charge of this because corporations are evil and bad. But at the same time, the corporations are the ones that are going to respond to you on Twitter, that are going to be responsive in some capacity versus the 43 days. Right. You can see where Americans are kind of going, going like, um, uh, right? Um, it's attention. And so that's sort of an opportunity to rebuild trust. But it's also, um, I mean, I just think uh, long term, it may not work for everybody. And I think we need to be thinking a little bit more strategically about, mm. about how we message that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do have concerns about the scarcity thinking thing. It, it seems like that's the battle is the scarcity versus abundance narrative in our politics. And is the politician's job to get back what's yours that somebody <laughs> else has? And both sides of the political spectrum just have someone who has your stuff and we're going to go get it back for you. I mean, I mean, there's a hero, right? People are like, yeah, man, go, you know, go do like we love those stories, you know, uh, and then kind of <laughs> rallying around that person. So I don't know. It's kind of curious, right? Because we're, we're both as American people, we like want to be the hero, but then we also just love to be a fan and to get our mm. hero ship and our success by rooting for the sports team with the quarterback that has the greatest tools. And I don't know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like when people are told vote for me because, or for my party, because we will make sure they won't take from you your rights yeah. or they won't take from you your money or they won't take from you your, your manhood or they won't, whatever, you know, just, it doesn't seem to matter. You can almost just end the sentence there. Like vote for me because then they won't take from you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you. Thank you for doing that. I mean, I think, I think, look, I, I think that there is something to be said about, you know, saying like so-and-so is an evil monster. Don't vote for them. I know that that works okay. in the short term. It works. And by works, I'm saying it's like yeah. it's like taking a shot of double espresso, but uh, eventually your adrenal glands get like busted, and then you're like lying on the floor and you can't move. I, it's a short term fix to a long term problem. I think long term for the health of the nation, we need to be telling different kinds of stories than mm. that. Uh, you know, I, I think. I mean, I might be, you know, committing heresy by saying this, but I think ultimately, like, we need to be telling a story where, like, Republicans and Democrats can somehow get along and that there's some kind of ecosystem where it's a sharing of ideas and we're all working together toward a better America. We may have different ideas, but at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We're all working hard on problems together. Um, I mean, the thing that shows up in my research again and again is how divided Americans are and how much that is a psychic wound that, like, needs healing. And I worry 
about what that does to us as a nation. I mean, you already seen intransigence in government. Um, you know, people are not moving forward. They're not making things happen. And, um, you know, at the, in, in DC and it, it Americans need to believe that it's possible to move forward because we can't keep up with the demands of the 21st century. Are we in the 21st century still? Yeah, we can't keep up with the demands of of the moment unless we're able to be nimble and responsive and work together. Um, The problems are too big um, for us to do that. So, so yeah, so short term, the enemy stuff, I think, works. But mm-hmm. long term, I think it's going to kill us. Yeah, boy, I'm it's, with you. But it seems, you know, as we do this work all the time with candidates, the short term is that yeah. the election's coming in November. So everything feels like, you know, it's, okay, for now, we're going to do this. And then once I get elected, yeah. then I'll start working this other narrative. And, boy, there's just something. We, we need a reset uh, somehow, some way in this <laughs> scarcity and there's someone robbed you someone took from you i mean it's just it's the conundrum of the american experience right that we say this one story that like you can do and be and create whatever you want and you've lifted yourself up by your own bootstraps and all you have is yours but then live paranoid as if someone's going to come take it away from you like just live in this world where all of these realities are just part of the jumbo you know and we're we're just in it yeah I mean, uh, an ongoing joke I have with a friend who runs a camp. His name is Steve, and he has ropes courses at his his camp. I'm just, I say to him, like, we need to send every American uh, to uh, to rope courses, and uh, we can do trust falls together. Uh, yeah. I mean, we do need a reset. We do need a reset, and I think Americans uh, would agree with you that there's a, there's a lot of things that need to be healed. There's a lot of conversations that need to be had, and there's a lot a lot of listening that needs to happen. Any any other great slides on here that you're like, boy, I just really love showing people this one because this one really oh, I mean well, they're all worthy one? of looking at of course but. I know I know we're in our I think we're in our last bit of time right um, no, well, we, well so, we have time if you have to stop talking because you have life responsibilities <laughs> I understand but well this is something that I think is really important this is about Americans wanting to be acknowledged um, wow. so one of the things that um, I'm thinking about a lot is you know mm-hmm. um, elections and and what people need from Joe Biden right now and what people need from their leaders in general in America, you know, what they expect. Um, and we put together a whole list of, you know, possible qualities um, that we had heard from our interviews in here to see on a national poll, like what, you know, people wanted. And I think this sort of underlines a lot of the things that we've talked about today. You know, when you think about your ideal president, they want someone who's a leader. Okay, check. I mean, that's basic. Um, believes America can get better and focused on helping America grow. I think that goes back to that a whole idea of Sun Tzu, right? Giving people a, a pathway forward and a sense of momentum and a sense of agency. Um, I think that that makes sense. Bringing people together, healing that psychic wound that we see um, Americans facing. It's really, really critical. Um, and, and people want to know that America can get better. Um, transparency is, is really integral as well, knowing what the heck is going on so that they can be a hero, so that they can they can be an assistant, you know, uh, so the government can be assistant to their success. Um, strength, well, healing. By, by the way, from here, I'm going to say I saw a statistic that said 70% of Americans want a transparent. And I didn't know that transparents were that big of a deal. It's an interesting word, oh. isn't it? That transparent is the same as like what the word oh. we phrase for a trans. That is interesting. I didn't know that. That is. That's, <laughs> yes, that is why the TV show on on Amazon Prime was called Transparent. Transparent, yeah. That's, yeah. Oh my goodness. 
God, anyway, that is uh, yeah, mind interesting, interesting to everybody. Yes, it is to me. Yeah. Just, just a fun little oh. wordplay at two thirty-four in that, the afternoon on a Tuesday. That is that is right. Um, but then you see here, right? Focused yeah. on taking care of citizens who are doing the right thing. Yes, that's such um, a big thing. So important. I'm surprised so that's important. only sixty-six percent, man. I feel like everybody thinks. I'm the one out here doing the right. And they are. People are doing incredible things. We have this little hint that we like to give to, to people when they're looking, politicians are trying to connect with faith voters. We're like, look, yeah, go to some faith community. It can be a Christian community or other, other faiths, whatever. Find right. out what they're doing and, yeah. thank them, and thank them for their work. You know, they're probably doing something of some good for someone. And it just seems like a really smart thing for politicians to do, to say to every group who does a bunch of good stuff in the world, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing the the thing. And uh, just really want to acknowledge it. Like just to have like an attitude of gratefulness, but instead Mm -hmm. an attitude of grievance seems to motivate most candidates. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to make sure they don't take... Man, people, that's what all the money goes to. That's where all the energy goes. And someone yeah. that's going around like, I just want to thank all of you for doing the right thing and for carrying the country and for getting up early and staying up late. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not trying to rain in the parade. I just don't know why this part, two parts of our brains as citizens want, you know, I don't know. It just is so responsive to this other sugar hit, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, sugar's tasty, but I mean, I mean, the, we, we, the focus of it, I think, is really important. I mean, we live in a media environment where there's a gajillion messages coming at your brain every day. And so I think, you know, kind of appealing to tribalism and appealing to the sense of like, they're bad, you're good. I think it's a simple story that people understand. It goes into the whole, like... Mm survival and people know what to do with it. It's, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an easy play. Uh, and I understand why it's used in politics, but you know, look, I, I did work on uh, nuclear disarmament and um, mm. with, with the nuclear disarmament community. And um, one of the things that we found was um, to get people to, yeah, to get people to sort of like give $5 or, you know, check a box, right? You could go negative, like the world's going to explode. It's bad. You know, people, if you throw a negative message at their head, um, short term, they're going to do like a simple action. So it makes mm. sense for voting. Like, yeah, bad things are going to happen if you don't vote. Like, okay, I'll go. But if you want them to take part in something um, long term, and 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 um, you need to paint a picture of a positive future vision where they can head towards, right? Mm-hmm. So most people don't really like nuclear weapons generally, but they don't believe that that world is possible. Yeah. So you literally need to paint what that would look like because people ask how, and then they stop because they don't know how. Um, so it's really, um, I think it, it's it's really important to get clear on are we mm-hmm. are we playing a long term game or a short term game? Um, and I mean long term. The game is democracy and sustaining democracy and sustaining the country. And I think that we are at a point where we need to be doing that essential work um, every day in order to have a healthier nation and have the opportunity to really move forward in a meaningful way because we can't, we can't do it alone. So Gretchen, I have a philosophical question for you here. Yeah. Do you think that that project that you just described there, which is so great, can yeah. that be done from the government political sector of our society? Oh, or do God. You well, think- I, 
Doug and Rob, I think it's it's got to be you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking about where to spend the remaining years of my life. I'm just wondering, do you think that's the best? But, but yeah. I mean that very honestly. Like, do you think we have either an underdeveloped sector of our society that should be doing this kind of thing or a full-on missing sector of our society? Because it almost feels like asking the politician who you are going to elect in a binary choice and has to go make votes and just do all the things, all the machinations of being a politician that you yeah. have to do. Are they really the best people to be championing this cause or is there a missing element in our civic life that needs to be talking about the big democracy project and saying to politicians, hey, you all need to join in this bigger project we all have going on because we're up to something here as, as the citizenry of the you know, 350 million of us and we're all up to something. And sure, bring, bring politics in. But so many of us think, well, we just need our politicians to do this. And I hear from politicians all the time, I need people around me to do this. I, I remember when Barack Obama was talking like this and he's like, hey, I can't get this stuff done. I need all of you. I was a little irritated actually, like in 2009. I'm like, seriously? Because you traveled around the country and said, yes, we can elect me and we'll go do this stuff. And here we go. And now you're like, hey, still, I kind of need all of you here. Uh, yeah. And there was a sense of like, no, we're just going to elect the right person. And that was the promise. And that was the deal. And now we have to do it. I feel like we got invited over for dinner and now we have to make it and clean up and take the garbage out. And so is the yeah. politician the best person or, or anyway, so I've talked too long about that, but what do you have thoughts? Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I mean, I don't know if you remember, you probably remember this in Texas, they had that whole big campaign. Don't mess with Texas. Yeah. And one of the things that um, someone told me about it and I, I didn't know at the time I was just like, Oh, that's what Texans say. Okay. You know? Um, but as you may know, um, it was not a, uh, it was a political organization, or sorry, it was a political, a government agency that was behind Don't Mess With Texas. They had seen that in Texas, there was a big littering problem. Yep. And they felt like by appeal, and they, I think they, had tr maybe they tried, maybe I'm making this story up, but maybe they tried to say like, stop littering Texans and it didn't work. Um, I think, maybe not, I don't know. But I do remember what they said was they wanted to appeal to the spirit of Texans and the idea of like independence and no one messes with this and the protective energy. But when they put it out, it was unbranded. They didn't say it was from X government agency. It was just a campaign that said, don't mess with Texas mm -hmm. and littering like went down like crazy, um, in Texas, which was cool. Um, but I think, I think that that sort of underlines your point, Doug, that maybe yeah. it's not necessarily government. I think it is certainly though a local and state endeavor. I have seen, I mean, I think there's modeling that needs to happen yeah. at the federal level, but where you see people have control and trust when you study Americans is, you know, the closer to their home they get, the more trust they have and the further it goes out, the less control they have. So connecting it with, you know, civic activities, you know, local political clubs, churches, community organizations, mm -hmm. schools, doing that kind of work, you know, I kind of envision, you know, activities that people can do that sort of show that they're united as a community, that, um, that they're working together, that they're working on big projects and that they can do hard things, I think is going to be where we see the change and where, where, where things are possible to, to take root. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Doug, as you were describing that, I just, I, like, the image that popped into my mind was, like, that of, like, a monarch, you know, that, like, you know, the queen who doesn't have any actual political power, right. but, 
she's she's there to remind them of like this is how we act as British people, right. and and like it's it I, exactly. And I, there there seems to be like that that sense that we we need some reminder of hey, there's some values that we share together yeah. as as people and. Mm-hmm. Those things need to be a part, and 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 if there was that ethos, then the politicians grow out of that ethos, as opposed to there being like a a, a different culture and politicians trying to reshape it while they're trying to get reelected. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, yeah. It seems like the system. It, I Doug, I, I, I don't know, nominate you as like. The National Duke of Goodness is that is is that what, <laughs> of common what the goodery? Movie? The Duke of Common Goodery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it does seem like something like that. You know, when you talk about the "Don't Mess with Texas" or the monarch, I mean, that's right. It, and kind of the "Keep America Beautiful." I think "Don't Mess with Texas" is actually even from the "Keep America Beautiful" campaign from the nineteen fifties and sixties, the anti-littering thing. And those all root back to like the plastics industry trying to make sure that they didn't get regulation put on them by the government. We, I, and I, I'm not raising this as if I have the solution. Like I just feel like there's a missing part of the American ecosystem mm-hmm. that takes on the American project. Education Absolutely. was supposed to do it or nonprofits are supposed yeah. to do it or religion. Like maybe we sort of for brief periods of time had different parts of our, our different sectors of our society that sort of took it on. Um, maybe there were times when, when the elected officials really were that, but man, yeah. I talk to elected officials a lot at every level and they're just overwhelmed. Like, and they feel like, I can't do that. Like, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you know what a congressperson does. Or I don't know if you know what a city mayor does. Or I don't know if you know what a, you know, what a lieutenant governor does. But, <sighs> like, I don't have that kind of power. I can't make people behave better. Like, I can be good myself, but I can't. So That's I just kind of think, who owns the American project? Um, of, Ken Burns. Um, Ken Burns. Is it Aaron Sorkin again? Is he oh, the only guy yeah. that wants to imagine a better future? <laughs> Well, I think too, by the way, I think we need to expand the menu of civic engagement. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have felt, and I mean, this is me as Gretchen, I have felt is that when it comes to how you can get involved with democracy, the government sort of advocating for a better world, there's sort of like a menu you can do, right? You can vote, uh, you can call and complain, uh, maybe get a letter back or call back, maybe. Um, You can go protest, um, but I'm kind of an indoor yeah. girl, so that's sort of like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you can, what else can you do? Oh, I don't know. Uh, that, that's that's pretty much it. Right? You, you, but you can run for office. Thing. You could run yourself, I oh, guess that would be. Okay. Yeah. They, they you can run for office. High. Maybe Right. Yeah. But where where is the uh, where is the space for the people who yeah. are kind of shy? They want to make a difference, right? Where's the space for the people that want to, you know, make cookies or, or whatever? Where's the space for people to meet democracy where they're at and the way that they want to express it. I, I've always felt like it's too limited and maybe this is just me as kind of a shy person, but like I want to be able to bake cookies yeah. for democracy and feel like I'm doing something and be part of it, which is, you know, well, Gretchen, why there, there had- was a movement in early 2020 called bake America great again. And if you haven't looked up bake America great again, it was an effort put together by vote common good and some of our buddies over out there in Hollywood to run bake sales, to fund the post office when Trump was trying to un- 
unfund the post office and we started a national bake sale. <laughs> them. So there was one brief moment where your, pol- your baking and your civic hell. life came together and we sold baked goods at a post office and the authorities <laughs> had to come up. Uh, it was a very real thing. But but that's, I think, uh, you know, we're having fun with it and we certainly, with the Bake America great again, we had fun with that, kind of. But we also, you know, it's a little Andy Kaufman. We weren't sure if we were goofing on Elvis here or not. Like, is, isn't there really a missing piece? Like we say a lot to, to mm-hmm. about our education system. We just have to teach kids more about civics. I don't know. It's yeah. not that great. Like, frankly, the, our current civic way, like you mentioned, people ask me a lot. They're like, hey, are you going to run for office? Is that what all this worky work you're doing is all about? I'm like, you know, there's only like seven th- things I could run for that are based on my on my address. Like, there's not that many jobs to have. Like, no, I can't do it as an elected official. There's actually, other than Amy Klobuchar, I don't think there's anyone I would run against. And that's just because she's never gotten back to me after I had a couple of sit-ins at her, at her office. So I'm willing to come after you, Amy Klobuchar, on this. But it's like, I don't know, all the people that are in the seats that are connected to my address, they're awful. So what else can a person do? Like you say, right. well, you can vote, you can donate like, oh, seriously, like that, that. So I don't know. It feels yeah. like we need a big civic project. Yeah. And I don't hear, I, I don't know. I, I'm, we're kind of off your topic, but I do think that if we're going to let mm-hmm. Americans be heroes in their civic shared life, we literally have to find ways for them to be. We do. We need heroes. victory gardens. We need war bonds. We need, we need, we need healing mm-hmm. and we need ways for people can plug into that and do something mm-hmm. um, more than anything. And, and uh, I, I think it might be one of the most important projects that we have as a nation, yeah. honestly, at this point. So, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. you guys can fix it and, and well, I'll just go off and make some cookies and it'll be cool. Uh, well, that's <laughs> Sorry, that's the very... Make America great again. Uh, well, this is so, so great. Um, if people want this material, that's uh, the, some of the slides they saw in depth and even mm-hmm. longer, do you, is there a place yeah. they can get them? Do you want us to send mm-hmm. them? Should we tie it to a, you know, some heroic act of civic do-goodery? Yeah. Large, large donation to vote common good. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> exactly. Right. If you make that's a large right. donation, then you can get this. Uh, no, I put it in the chat here. I don't know if you can share it with the with the folks, but um, dollars. Ten million dollars. Um, no, but please take a look, and um, you know my email. Back if, if you have any questions. It is, it's uh, it, it, the Future Majority website is where they can find it. Correct. So yeah, it's on futuremajority.org and uh, that's where you can go into the content area and uh, when poll Mer- Making Americans Hear the Story Down from the, the catalog and you can get it there. So, so great. Yeah. Gretchen, thank you for all things Gretchen Barton for the gives to the world. Thank, thank you. Let's bake America great, guys. And uh, no, I appreciate you both. Thank you for, for having me. All right. <laughs> hey, thanks everybody. Thanks for having, uh, you know, giving us another uh, another run today. Uh, but we're done for the day. So if if you're under this, we're not hey, coming back this evening, Doug. No, no, we're not coming back. Well, I'm not. Are you, are you going to come back on? Hey, um, by the way, Gretchen did say, you know, one of the things you can do is march. If people are interested in in raising your voice to try to tell our politicians to stop killing people in this country, which is a really good mm-hmm. thing, you can tell that to the governor of Tennessee this mm-hmm. Sunday. We are going to be with a bunch of other people in Tennessee, walking from a death chamber to the state capitol to tell the governor on Easter Sunday not to execute uh, Oscar Smith on the, that coming next Thursday. 
So we think Easter is a good day to remind governors that being involved in executions is not the story you want to be involved in. Because, um, you know, that's the point of resurrection is to be a condemnation of executions. It's sort of the, the final mockery of the execution. So don't think you should worship, uh, you know, uh, go to a worship service about resurrection on Sunday and then execute someone on Thursday. It, it just it just feels um, like you're violating the very thing you know is true. So we're going to be doing that. If you want to do that in Tennessee, fly down to Nashville, join us at 1 p.m. and you can walk uh, with us. If you want to walk in your own town, please do anywhere you are, uh, any part of the day. And um, just know that you're in solidarity walking with others. And that little sound in the background, uh, angels getting their wings. So that means we have to be <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you, you, Michael Simmons. Thank you, Gretchen Barton. And uh, just just quick thanks here to the to the people. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, uh, Michelle. Thanks, Caleb, and thanks, Michelle. Okay, there's only four comments. All right. Uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to y'all later. Bye.